Uh, Will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Let's turn to Colossians 3. This will be our New Testament reading. We'll read verses 12 to 25 after we, we pray for God's illumination. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would please shine the light of your Holy Spirit upon your word so that we can see it clearly and upon our hearts so that we, our hearts would not be dark but um, enlightened with the light that only you can give so we can understand the Bible and rightly apply it to our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit to work within us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 25. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Amen. Now let's turn back to Joshua 24. I realized I skipped the last verse, which is, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. It's also significant in the context. What we're about to read, uh, we just, just thinking about why we read that passage from Colossians, those last two verses are really significant. You are serving the Lord Christ and then speaking of the wrongdoer being repaid. Let's keep those ideas in the back of our minds as we now read this final chapter of Joshua. We're coming to the end of our Joshua series, end of the book, Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. 
And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed, indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, This stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. 
As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas' son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to introduce you to a theological word tonight. The word is antithesis. Antithesis. An antithesis is an absolute contrast between two incompatible things. So in God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1 says. Or what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, Paul asks in 2 Corinthians 6. Or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial? In Romans 1, he says it like this. He says, although people knew God, they did not honor him as God. He says, they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the antithesis. Light and darkness, good and evil, righteousness and lawlessness, wisdom and folly. Now, there's a word that's kind of the opposite of antithesis. That's the word neutrality. Neutrality. Neutrality is the attempt to, well, it's the attempt to be neutral. It's the attempt to to get outside that antithesis, to get outside that, those sets of incompatible things, and, and to find some kind of spiritual or, or intellectual place to stand that belongs neither to God nor to his enemies. A place where we can, we suppose, uh, kind of fairly and even-handedly judge between these competing claims of God and his rivals, trying to be neutral. There's a problem with this attempt at neutrality. The problem is, is if we're trying to be neutral in that sense, then we are really putting ourselves in the position of God. We are making ourselves out to be God. Because if I can make a determination by my own judgment between God's claims and the claims of his rivals, then who's really the sovereign one? Who is really the judge and the arbiter of the universe? Making yourself out to be God. And so that means that you're right back. That we're, if, we, if we take that route, then we're right back where we started. Because that attitude of wanting to be the judge and arbiter of the universe, wanting to be the ultimate sovereign one who gets to decide, well, that's at the heart, at the very heart of the darkness and evil and lawlessness and unbelief that characterize rebellion against God. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden and that first question, did God really say? In other words, we cannot escape the antithesis. We cannot get outside of it to a position of neutrality. We can only ask ourselves, rather, 
Where am I standing? Which side am I standing on? Which way am I facing? Or to put it in Joshua's terms from tonight's passage, whom am I serving? With my mind, my spirit, my body, myself. Whom am I serving? So let's uh, look at this chapter in three parts tonight. The first is going to be an important choice, verses 1 to 15. Second is an impossible calling, verses 16 to 24. And third, an imprecatory covenant, verses 25 to 33. So an important choice, an impossible calling, and an imprecatory covenant. All right, now verse 1. Uh, Joshua gathers together all of the tribes of Israel at Shechem. And uh, so to begin with, we should ask, what is important about Shechem, about this place? The first thing to know is uh, that we have been to this very location in the book of Joshua before, but you might not know that uh, unless you know a little bit of Israelite geography. Go back to chapter 8, Joshua chapter 8. Shechem is not mentioned, but what is mentioned? Joshua brought the people to two mountains, Mount Gerizim on one side of the valley and Mount Ebal on the other side of the valley. And you remember how half of them stood in front of one mountain, half of them stood in front of the other mountain, and they had a covenant renewal ceremony there, uh, just the way Moses had commanded back in Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 27. He said, this is what you're supposed to do when you get in the land, and there they are, and they do it. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim represented the blessings of the covenant, Mount Ebal represented the curses of covenant breaking. And so it was this vivid, uh, dramatic pageant kind of displaying the starkness of that antithesis that Israel was facing in the land of Canaan. Blessing and curse, in this case, for covenant faithfulness or rebellion. Well, why do I go into all this? As it turns out, the city of Shechem lies right in between those two mountains. It's in that valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And so here in Joshua 24, we're back at the very same place of covenant renewal where Israel renewed the covenant back in chapter 8. It's the same same place. And, of course, what's happening in this chapter, it's another covenant renewal ceremony. It's the same thing happening again at the same place. This time, one last time before Joshua dies. This is really interesting, though. That's not the only reason that Shechem is important for this chapter. The location is important. Um, The other reason it is very meaningful goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis 35. Uh, Jacob has escaped from Laban. He's wrestled with God at Peniel. He's been reunited with his brother Esau. But then, you may remember from our Genesis series a while ago, uh, he, after that mountaintop experience wrestling with God at Peniel, uh, Jacob goes through a period of kind of um, backsliding a little bit, of compromise and failure as he's living where? At Shechem, this city. This is the city where Dinah is violated um, and all of these things. Where he's living before those city gates. And in chapter 35 of Genesis, God tells Jacob, listen, Jacob, it's time for you to go back to Bethel. Leave Shechem and go back to Bethel. Bethel being the place where God had appeared to him at first and established his special relationship with Jacob. And there's a very striking scene there in chapter 35 where Jacob says to all his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. 
hear that language echoed in this chapter, put away the foreign gods that are among you. And it says, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. I wonder if it was the same terebinth tree or maybe the same terebinth grove or something um, that's mentioned near the end of this chapter. And back there in chapter 35 of Genesis, kind of shocking there to hear that there are still foreign gods in Jacob's household at that point. His family members have foreign gods with them and that they have to get rid of and bury after everything that Jacob's been through. They still have foreign gods in the house. Um, But that day at Shechem, there's this great step of repentance that, that Jacob takes with his family. They put those gods away. They bury them in the ground and they leave them there in the earth under the tree at Shechem. Shechem. And that's what makes another yet another thing that makes this scene at Shechem all the more meaningful because Joshua is putting Israel before Israel here this stark choice, this antithesis between serving the Lord and serving other gods. And you could almost say that in a manner of speaking, he is standing over the graves of the idols of Jacob's family. And he it's like he's implying that Israel needs to make sure that those false gods stay buried where Jacob left them in the ground. If you think about it, you and I are very, very quick, I think, to dig up our old idols out of the ground. Things that we thought we had buried once and for all, whether that's maybe a besetting sin that you thought you'd mastered, but then it takes you by surprise and it tempts you again and you fall into it again and it's, it's Or when that temptation comes, it's like you're wanting to take a shovel and dig up that ground again where you buried it in the ground because you just want to see it. You want to hold it one last time and experience it again. It's digging up your idols. This can happen in our relationships too where you thought that you'd forgiven somebody. Um, And yet, there's something that they say or there's something that they do and all of a sudden it just comes back and you're reliving all of your anger all over again because you've dug it up out of the ground. And what the Lord is calling you to do is to put that shovel down. Leave buried those sins that he has forgiven, that he has promised you the strength to overcome. Do not treasure their memory. Do not nurture the thought of them. Do not go back to them for comfort or relief. You need to leave them in the ground to rot where God has called you to leave them. And you follow him. You serve him, not them anymore. In light of this very remarkable location, it's striking that as Joshua begins then with a recounting of Israel's history, he goes all the way back to Abraham and he reminds Israel that that uh, great man of their history, that beloved ancestor, patriarch, uh, great holy man of faith, right? Abraham, the man of faith. Well, he didn't start out that way, did he? When the Lord found him in Ur of the Chaldeans, what was Abraham? It, what was Abram? He was an idolater, just like everybody else. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the, the Euphrates, and they served other gods. But then what happened? Then I took, I took your father Abraham, out of that mess. The story of the covenant of grace begins not with the righteousness of the people of God, 
It begins with the sovereign, gracious initiative of God himself. He's the one who acts first to take Abram out of his idolatry and sin and to bring him into a relationship with himself. There's nothing Abram had done to qualify himself to be the father of God's people before the Lord took hold of him. The Lord found him as an idolater and brought him out of that life to give him a new life, to give him a new calling, a new destiny at the head of a new holy people for himself. And so Joshua goes on from there to recount kind of the broad outlines of God's ongoing um, relationship with Israel down through the generations. Isaac, Jacob, bringing Jacob and his family down to Egypt, then back out again um, years later in the Exodus under Moses. At that point, he slows down because he's getting into more recent history. He reminds the people of the Red Sea crossing. Uh, some of the older, some of the oldest people among Israel at this point uh, would have lived through that, um, uh, perhaps as, as children or as, as maybe uh, young people. Um, the Exodus and the Red Sea crossing always uh, stood at the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and that is why you shall have no other gods before me from the Ten Commandments like we confessed this morning. Um, that gracious foundation, um, even for the law, God's grace comes first, just like it did with Abraham. God's grace comes first. It's God's initiative. It's his undeserved favor. It's his saving action that come first. And that's why Israel is to obey him and serve him exclusively, wholeheartedly. It's because of what God has done first. Now Joshua goes on with this historical survey. He goes on past the Exodus, past the Red Sea. And he shows how God continued to take care of them uh, through the wilderness, through their encounter with Balak and Balaam. And then he gets to the conquest of Canaan. And um, he reminds them that God has kept every one of his promises from Deuteronomy. You've given them the land on which you had not labored, the cities you hadn't built. Now you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you didn't plant. Just the things that the Lord had promised that he would do, the Lord has done. And the conclusion then comes in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. See, Israel's service to God, um, when you think about how, what kind of attitude Israel is supposed to serve God with, it's not to be an attitude of kind of, uh, it's not to be a slavish attitude. It's not a slavish response just to God's raw power. Uh-oh, God's so powerful he can destroy us if we disobey, and so, oh, we better obey God. I mean, there is a proper fear of God's power, and those threats of the covenant are there for a reason. But the primary way God communicates this is supposed to be a loving response of gratitude to what God has done for them, not merely fear of what God can do against them. It's supposed to be gratitude of what, for what God has done for them already, for generation after generation, all of this love, all of these gifts that God has heaped upon them um, that they certainly never deserved, their ancestors certainly never deserved. That's to be the foundation at the heart of, Israel, of why Israel wants to serve the Lord. Joshua goes on. He says, Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. We have to ask, does that mean that some Israelites at this point in Israel's life were actually still carrying around some of those old pagan gods? Um, just like with Jacob in Genesis 35, it's kind of shocking to think that they would, but it seems to be the case. Verse 23 makes it even a little more explicit. He says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. 
And how sobering is that to think that after everything they've been through, there are still some Israelites who are still carrying these false gods around with them. Sorry about that. Um, so we come to verse 15, which of course is the most famous verse that everybody remembers from this chapter. And this is where Joshua really crystallizes this important choice, confronting Israel as they continue life in the promised land. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. He's saying, if you don't serve the Lord, you've got to decide to serve somebody. Who is it going to be? And there are a lot of options out there for Israel. You can serve the Mesopotamian gods uh, that Abraham used to worship back up in Ur. Uh, You can worship the Egyptian gods that some of your parents and grandparents worshipped while they were slaves. And, of course, you can worship some of the Canaanite gods that you're going to find all around this land, among the people around you. If you don't serve the Lord, you're going to have to decide among those other alternatives. It's almost as though Joshua is laying out for them how unappealing those other choices are. Saying, look, if you don't serve this very good and gracious and loving and holy God who has done so much for you already, if you don't serve him, then you're stuck with all of these far lesser options. And he's saying, and I I don't know about you, Israel, but I don't like any of them. I know what I'm going to choose. As for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later, but first I want to look at how the people respond to this challenge, this is the second point, an impossible calling. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So they're on board with what Josh was saying. Uh, they're, they're stating their commitment to be exclusively loyal to the Lord. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And so it's kind of surprising the way Joshua answers them in verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. You think, Joshua, they've, they've just given the right answer. What, what more do you want from them? Um, why are you saying they can't do exactly what you just called them to do? And it's interesting, when he gives the reason, he doesn't initially mention the people's weakness. That's a factor, of course. But he doesn't focus on their lack of faith, their inability to obey, which he could have brought up. What he points them to is the character of the God that they're promising to serve. He says, do you realize just how... Holy, 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 this God is that you're saying you intend to serve. Do you realize that he's a jealous God who can't just ignore your treachery when you inevitably fail to follow through on this promise? Do you realize what you're getting into? He's impressing on them the grave difficulty. In fact, the impossible, how impossible it is to live up to the standard of perfect covenant loyalty that uh, God deserves. And, and requires from people who belong to him. Now, the people insist, of course. They say, no, 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 no. We really mean it. No, but we will serve the Lord. And so we get here to the third point, which is the imprec- an imprecatory covenant. Um, Joshua tells them, okay, Israel, just make sure you do understand what you are getting yourself into here. You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So in other words, Israel is renewing their solemn public commitment to be loyal to God. Uh, And they're doing that with the explicit understanding that um, they accept the consequences if they fail. 
which are very dire. If they betray the Lord, uh, they know what's going to happen to them. And um, Joshua makes this even more solemn and formal as he sets up this large stone. Um, He says, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard. This big stone has heard everything that you've just said. And it's going to be a witness against you if you deal falsely with God. And so now, at Shechem, between those two mountains of covenant blessing and curse, there are going to now be two memorable artifacts of history for Israel to look back upon. Under the ground are going to be buried the idols of Jacob's family. And above the ground is going to be this huge stone. And when they see it, they're going to, they're supposed to remember the promises that they've made and the serious consequences of breaking those promises. And I call this an imprecatory covenant. It's another big theology word, but imprecatory simply means, it's simply referring to the curses of the covenant. Curses can be called imprecations. Curses, covenant curses. And he's saying, when you enter into this relationship, you're accepting the consequences of violating the curses that come for those who break it. And the stone then would be this enduring testimony to that relationship and to those consequences that would outlast this present generation that every future generation of Israel would be able to look back on and see. And that's what's underlined in the closing section, these three burials that take place at the end. The bones of Joseph, Joshua's burial, Eleazar's burial. Uh, The present generation of godly leadership is passing from the scene. That's what's happening here. Israel is entering into a new season, a new phase of life where those leaders are going to be gone, but that stark choice is going to remain. Whom will you serve? Who are you going to serve? The Lord has been faithful. And that's clear enough from the burial of Joseph's bones. Safely back in the promised land now, after all those years of anticipation. The Lord has been faithful. The question is, will Israel be faithful? Now this summer we're going to take a break uh, from these historical books. We're going to spend some time in the Psalms again. But when we come back to Judges in the fall, we're going to find out that sadly, by and large, Israel frequently is not going to be faithful to the Lord. Um, In fact, Joshua's warning is going to turn out to be spot on. Israel is not able to serve the Lord. And we see that he is indeed a holy and jealous God, and that there are indeed severe consequences when Israel commits treachery against the covenant. And so in that respect, um, this book of Joshua that's so full of victory and success ends on kind of a somber note, right? Thinking about what comes after it. And it should leave us wondering if Israel couldn't keep the covenant, if Israel couldn't serve the Lord, who can? And what makes us think that we can? I hope you already know that the answer is that you can't either. But but you also have to remember the other lesson of this chapter, which is that the success of God's covenant and the blessing ultimately of God's people has never ultimately depended on his people's ability to keep the covenant. It's always depended, every generation, on the faithfulness and the grace 
of the God of the covenant. That's the only way this can work. It's true for you, just like it was true for Israel. You cannot serve the Lord. You can't do it. You cannot do what it takes. You do not have what it takes to keep that standard of perfect righteousness, perfect purity, perfect, unbroken, ever loyalty that his holy, holy, holiness requires. And we can see that. That's our track record of the facts of our lives, that we have turned our backs on the Lord time after time after time. And even, even when we have had maybe some measure of success in burying our idols in the, in the ground, we keep coming and digging them back up again and sinning all over again. And so what do we deserve but all of the curses of the law, all those curses of Mount Ebal, all those dire consequences that the Lord can muster against covenant breakers like us? who have fallen so far short of our duty, who have disrespected his generosity and his love so ungratefully over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, what you have to understand from Joshua 24 is that all of these things are exactly why we need the Lord Jesus Christ so desperately, so completely. It is because we cannot serve the Lord. But the Lord Jesus can. And the Lord Jesus did. And he did it perfectly. And he did it without interruption. He did it without faltering. He did it without ever going astray. And he's the only person ever who served his Heavenly Father with all of his heart. Not a drop of disloyalty polluting his pure and unmixed affection and commitment, and whole-souled devotion to God. And that means that it is in Him, in Christ, and only in Him, that covenant breakers, like us, can be counted and treated as covenant keepers. It's because we depend on His perfect work that gets exchanged for all of our failures. So our failures get placed on him on the cross. And his perfect record of covenant keeping is given to us as a free gift. That's the gospel. So now as we walk out the door and we walk into the great antithesis of life in a fallen world that's in rebellion against God. And we're confronted with the choice every day, every moment, who are you going to serve? Choose this day whom you will serve. Well, isn't the choice obvious? As Peter once said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, if you decide not to serve Jesus, you're going to have to make a choice of who you are going to serve. And the other options simply are not attractive by comparison if we're seeing straight. So if you're not serving Jesus, the only other options mean enslavement to sin, mean the, the futility and the meaninglessness of life apart from God, 
and in the end, the condemnation of his everlasting judgment. Those are the options. There's no neutrality. It's an antithesis. And so I want to invite us, exhort us here at Resurrection to be people who take our stand, saying, as for me and my house, what are we going to do? We're going to serve the Lord. Uh, But not to do that, as we're sometimes inclined to do with kind of a spirit of arrogance, kind of triumphalism. Ah, we're so proud of ourselves, patting ourselves on the back because we made the right choice to serve the Lord instead of everybody else out there. And there might have been some people in Israel who had that attitude on this day. And, of course, we know how that turned out for them. That pride, if that characterized them, was not well-founded. Because Joshua is right. They could not serve the Lord, not through their own resources. And neither can you or I. If we're going to serve the Lord Jesus, if we are going to persevere in his service all the way to the end, the resources to do that are going to have to come from him So let's serve him, yes, let's commit ourselves zealously to serve him, but but let's do that with humility and dependence on him, looking to him as the beginning and the end of the whole Christian life, as the, the one who can actually keep our idols buried in the ground when we can't, but who will raise us up from the ground on the last day by the surpassing power that belongs to him and not to us. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Joshua and thank you for everything that you have revealed about yourself uh, to us in it. Lord, we acknowledge, as Joshua told Israel, that we are not able to serve you the way that we ought to and the way that you deserve. And so we cast ourselves on your mercy to forgive us for this and also on your grace to help us to serve you and to make us faithful servants, uh, which we know that you can do and we know you've promised to do because not of how good we are, but because of what Jesus has done for us. So we ask that you would make good on these promises and help us by your Spirit to serve you this night, this week, and throughout our lives until you call us home. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.